I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, April 9th, 2012, day after Easter. Gotta tell ya, church was awesome yesterday. But then again, you know, church is pretty awesome every Sunday, at least where I go to church. It's because the pastor doesn't talk about himself. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is... No shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we do the comparative work to see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word teaches. When you look at it in context, and is what they're teaching really how we're supposed to understand Scripture? And the way we're supposed to understand Scripture is by figuring out from the text in context what God the Holy Spirit has revealed there. You don't just get to come up with your own interpretations. The goal is... Uh, the goal of the so-called interpreter, and, I, and I'll put that in air quotes there. The, the goal of the so-called interpreter is to rightly handle God's Word to tell us the real sense and meaning of what it is that God the Holy Spirit has revealed there. Now, let me use a metaphor. Let me use an analogy. Let me kind of help things out here. Um, there are a lot of folks who are caught up in something that, well, looks kind of Christian-ish, sounds Christian-y uses Christian-y kind of words and language, and then, then at the same time, um, they aren't really being given the real goods, the real treasure, the real deal, if you would. Why? Well, it's kind of like this. This is the metaphor. Think back to the Middle Ages. Think back to when the Holy Roman Empire held sway in Europe, back in the day you know, of medieval Catholicism, in its last gasps of breath, so to speak, uh, you know, right at the time of the Renaissance, okay? Yeah, so the, you kind of got the idea here. Um, 
We're all familiar with those stories of those rascally scientists who were considered heretics, who some guys, you know, some scientists would posthumously publish their works because they knew if they were to publish their findings during their lifetime, well, they would be burned at the stake. And one of the major heresies, at least, well, how the Roman church saw it, uh, was this idea that, well, when science, let me, let me put it this way. Scientists couldn't figure out how to get the math to work whenever they would plug the earth into the center of the universe in their equations. And so they came, I mean, it, it created all kinds of bizarre problems and they couldn't get it to work, couldn't get it figured out. It wasn't until uh, certain scientists came along and said, <laughs> no, 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 no. See, the problem is, is that the Earth is not the center of, well, this um, solar system, not the center of the universe. And so they came along and they figured out, aha, in order to get the math to work right, you got to put the sun into the center of the universe. Makes sense, right? You know, it's for all of us, you know, who've, Grown up in 20th century or late 20th century, early 21st century mathematics classes, uh, astronomy, science classes and stuff like that. This is kind of a no brainer. I mean, you know, moonshots wouldn't be possible, uh, you know, sending, you know, space probes out into the deepest regions of our solar system wouldn't be possible if we couldn't do the math right. 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 And what was the big discovery? Aha. The big discovery was as well. Planet Earth is not the center of, well, our solar system. And once they figured that out, everything began to make sense. When you put the right thing into the center, all of the stuff begins to make sense, and then you can, and, and, and it begins to work, right? Well, Christianity is similar to that. And what I mean by that is this, is that uh, we as human beings have a severe problem uh, that we are not capable of overcoming on our own steam. It, it, there's just like no way to do it, not even partially on our own steam. It, we have to actually be rescued from it. It's so bad. But this has to do with our sinful nature, our corrupted, sinful, and fallen nature that we've inherited from our parents, and they inherited from their parents all the way back to the first parents, Adam and Eve. And what happens is, is because of man's rebellion against God, we are born spiritually blind. We are sp born spiritually at war with God. We're born, well, it's worse than blind, it's dead. Dead, 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 dooby-dooby-dead. Dead. Um, so it's it's we've got a problem here. And so what happens is, is when people approach the Bible, um, um, really kind of using their own intuition, their own ideas, what they do is, is they stick themselves into the center of the scriptures. And so you come up with a narcissistic centered uh, reading of the biblical text. And I've got news for you. Just like in the medieval period, um, you couldn't figure out astronomy as long as you had the earth in the center of the equation. You, you, there's just no way to work, work out the math. Christianity cannot be, it doesn't work. It does not work with you in the center. Plain and simple. When you, when you read the biblical stories and basically say, okay, those stories are actually about me. Okay, let me give you an example. I uh, part of my research uh, something I'm working on right now. I'm actually working on a uh, an article 
that, that's part of a series of articles I'm doing on what is called ecclesiastical fascism. Work with me here. I know it's kind of a uh, <laughs> quite the title. Um, you know, it's I understand it's somewhat provocative, but uh, in fact, the the first uh, the first um, installment of that uh, series that I'm writing is available uh, with the Logia. Uh, it's Logia is a Lutheran uh, is a Lutheran theological journal, and it's available I think in the January of this year edition of uh, Logia, and I think they publish quarterly, so, but uh, my first installment on ecclesiastical fascism is is available in uh, in Logia. Um, now, that being the case, uh, the next installment, uh, there's another installment due pretty soon here, and uh, I've been working on um, uh, basically taking the e- ecclesiastical model that's in play in the seeker-driven churches, right? And in the seeker-driven churches, the ecclesiastical model is this vision-casting pastor, right? Well, the, there's a there's a lot of problems with that. But I've been read uh, I've been working through and kind of teasing out quotes from uh, Andy Stanley's book called Visioneering. Okay, if you haven't read the book, you need to read the book. I, this is I, you know. Uh, this is not my first time through it, but I've been working the quotes to try to put into my uh, into my research paper. But here, here's the idea: is that in Andy Stanley's book Visioneering, you have what I would consider consider one of the uh, standard examples of what's wrong with how evangelicals, American evangelicals, in the seeker-driven movement, mishandle God's word. And over and again, Andy Stanley looks to the people in Scripture as if somehow that reveals that God has a vision for your life, just the way that God had a vision for the life of Moses, that God had a vision for the life of Nehemiah, that God had a vision for the life of, well, even the Virgin Mary. And so what happens is is that rather than reading the story with the understanding that Jesus is the center of Scripture. And ultimately, the point in every one of those stories, what happens is in a um, narcissistically centered reading of Scripture, you put yourself into the center, and all of a sudden, the story of Mary is really actually about you. The story of Moses, well, it's actually about you. The story of David, well, it's about you. Um, the story of Nehemiah, again, you. Um, the story of the Acts of the Apostles, you. Um, every story ends up being about you. Um, well, uh, when you do that, you can't understand the Bible, Period. Flat out, it's impossible for you to get the point of Scripture when you plug yourself in as the center. And ultimately, all of these stories in the Bible, well, they're telling me about God's grand vision for my life that I need to fulfill into the world and that I need to you know, do the same things that those people did so that God can reveal to me the vision he has for my life like he did to those people. That, that, uh, the problem is, is you stick yourself into the center of Scripture. And when you do that, you miss the whole point, and uh, the reality is is that you have no clue what Christianity is all about, and ultimately your Christianity, and it's uh, it's not it's not historic Christianity. In that case, it's a, an apostate, idolat- idolatrous, narcissistic um, version that, of something that's supposed to be Christian but isn't. Ultimately, your false Christianity it it doesn't work. And here's the reason why. Because when you make it about you, 
Ultimately, you make it about the law and your law keeping and you being faithful and you earning this from God and you earning that from God and ultimately having some role in your own salvation. Okay, That's a works-based religion. Whenever you stick yourself into the center of the scriptures or you stick yourself into the center of Christianity, um, that's about as fruitful of an endeavor as trying to stick the earth into the center of astronomy. And what you find when you do that well, astronomy doesn't work, and neither does Christianity, because it's not Christianity. It ceases to be Christianity. Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about what he has done for us, not what you do for him. He doesn't need anything from you. In fact, our good works uh, that that are a result of our regeneration and rebirth, because our new nature in Christ, when you're reborn, when you are born again, when you are regenerated, when you are converted— when you are raised from the dead spiritually, you have a new nature in Christ. And that new nature, it does good works just because that's what it does. Um, it's kind of the same way, well, Jupiter orbits the sun because that's what Jupiter does. It's the same way. Uh, so the idea here is, is that you do good works because you're a new creation in Christ, and new creations in Christ can't help but do good works. In fact, there's no such thing. As, as well, a Christian who doesn't do good works. That, that animal doesn't exist in the kingdom of God, which is why James writes what he writes, okay? Just as the body that is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do good works, which then leads to the question, well, what is a good work? But see, the thing is, is when you do a good work, okay, when you do a good work, you're not doing it for, really, you're not even, you're not doing it for God, and you're not doing it for yourself, and you don't have to do it for yourself, because, well, doing it for yourself would be silly, because you're completely already saved, already, and so Christians do good works for their neighbors, not for themselves, and ultimately not really for God either, they do it for their neighbor, because their neighbor needs the good works, God doesn't need them, you don't need them, the reason why you don't need them is because you're already saved by all the good works that Christ has done, all of his perfect obedience and righteousness is imputed to you as if you're the one who lived it, so we do good works not to earn brownie points, not to earn blessings, not to earn part of our salvation, not any of that, we do good works because, that, well, that's what we do, you, you, you understand what I'm saying, so the idea here is is that when you read yourself into the center of Scripture, when you read yourself into the center of the Christian life, when you read yourself into the middle of all of this stuff, you, well, at that point you have zeal for God. Which God? I don't know. Maybe you. You have zeal for God, but it has it's not based on knowledge. It's zeal that's based on narcissism. It's a false religion. And ultimately, it's a false god you serve because you're serving yourself, right? So that's the idea. Now, this problem becomes really, really, really evident at least one time of the year. Now, listen, here at Fighting for the Faith, I endeavor to point this problem out on a day-to-day -day basis um, by good teaching and bad teaching, by critiquing as well as p holding out before you what the real thing looks like, sounds like, right? Now, but a couple times a year, Easter in particular, is a time when we can see this problem as clear as a three-inch pimple on the end of somebody's nose. Plain and simple, okay? Yeah, you can't, you can't mask this problem 
at Easter time. It's impossible. If you were re- if your pastor really believes that he's the center of scripture and that ultimately he's teaching you that you're the center of scripture, this is going to stick stick out so badly that uh, during Easter time, you, there's a, <laughs> uh, you, you would have to be blind to not see the problem. That's all there is to it. And so this during this time of the year, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Okay, and by the way, I did see that MythBusters edition <laughs> where they, you know, the, they tried out the whole concept of shooting fish in a barrel, and sure enough, you know, uh, that's a legitimate thing. You put fish into a barrel, and you take a shotgun, and you just start shooting. The shockwave itself kills them. You don't even have to hit them; just the shockwave from the. You, you get what I'm saying? So, so what we're gonna do um, this week and next week is to kind of point out. The glaringly obvious. Why? The the question comes up, why do you do this? The reason why is because God's word commands me to, right? Because we're to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, Titus says, and to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, the job of a teacher, a Christian teacher or pastor or somebody who teaches within the church their job is not just to proclaim the truth, but also to throw rocks at the wolves, to expose them, to rebuke them and expose their false teaching so that people will see it. Okay? Because, listen, when you put somebody into the pulpit who isn't regenerate, they're not going to preach the gospel. They don't know how to. They don't even believe it. Right? And uh, you you put a heretic into a pulpit, their lifetime project is going to be to destroy biblical Christianity and come up well and draw away for themselves, you know, their own you know people who will listen to the things that they're telling them, their unique interpretations, their specific visions, and things like that. Uh, but they're not going their 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 life project has nothing to do with proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Ultimately, it's about proclaiming themselves. So again, a couple times a year this really sticks out. Easter is the big time. Another time when you can see it, but not necessarily as clearly, but it's it's clearer than during the, the rest of the year, is also during Christmas. Because here's the deal, is that you can say that there are two really big, important, high holy days in Christianity. One is the day in which we celebrate the virgin birth of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, that would be Christmas. But uh, the big one, the the one that, that nothing even can touch as far as you know, light is concerned, nothing even comes close, is the day in which we celebrate Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave. You can tell there's something seriously wrong at your church when that takes a back seat, not just in the preaching but in the service itself, when that takes a back seat or makes a cameo appearance or you know, barely gets mentioned at all, only to have the pastor dive into something more important while well, talking about you. And so um, what we're going to do today is uh, we're, we're going to begin—listen, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is part one of a ten-part series. <laughs> so there's like—I'm I'm looking at my list going, oh boy, yeah, um, there's just no way we're getting through all that today. I mean, I'm just looking at the list today. So let's talk about 
stories that we're going to talk about today and what we don't get to today, what will be part of tomorrow's program, because, you know, we've got a lot of ground to cover over the next 10 days. And uh, that requires me to also inform you that this week and next week, we will not have any installments in our Blackaby series. That's uh, what we ain't going to do this week or next week. We've got uh, we've got some real heavy lifting to do to really kind of highlight this problem that exists where, um, you know, you've got something masquerading as Christianity that isn't. Why? Because Christ isn't at the center ultimately while well, you are or your pastor is or somebody else is, but it's not Jesus. You know, that that fake Christianity doesn't work. And so we, we got we got to take advantage of the time that we are, we're in right now to really highlight this fact. So what we're going to do here today, there's a few news stories I would like to get to. Again, I'm just going to lead, read to you the things that I am prepared to discuss as the program develops. There's certain things that may not make the cut today. If they don't make the cut today, they'll be on the docket tomorrow or the next day. So don't worry. We're going to get to all of this stuff. But uh, we got a news story about a, a church in Sacramento that was recently on the news because they held their Easter service at a mosque. We'll talk about that. I've got a Patricia King update where she's talking about restorers arising. Not sure what that means, but uh, we'll see what uh, that has, what all that has to do with. Um, we will be tuning in this week, just so you know. I want to remind you all that this week, the Presence Conference down in Sydney, Australia, is going to be held at, uh, with Phil Pringle and the gang. And so... Um, I've been in, uh, I've technically, uh, well, how do I put this? Um, I have enlisted the help in formally slash informally on Facebook, if you would, of uh, of uh, Jake Elliott uh, down in, uh, down, down under. He's going to try to help me with getting audio recordings of coming out of the Presence Conference so that uh, we can take a look at what's going on there this week. So just so you know, there's a really good chance, if that being the case, that sometime this week we'll be doing a Stephen Furtick update. And I want to let you all know uh, that I have received so far only one uh, edition of uh, somebody attempting to sing uh, Carly Simon's, our, our version of Carly Simon's song, You're So Vain. Um, and so if you, 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 I'll just put it this way. If you don't like it, well... <laughs> You get your karaoke machine out and and uh, and submit your version of it. That's going to be something we're going to look at here. But so we we might talk about the presence conference today. Uh, we got a news story we have to get to today about Tebow uh, drawing a big crowd in Texas for an Easter I don't know sermon e kind of thing that he did down there. Um, I've got a quick David Crank uh, post Easter message video that we've got to play. And uh, and then we're going to actually spend, well, let's see here, uh, probably the majority of our time in the first hour today, not looking at sermon bites, if you would, but looking at just a comparison between the songs that were played in prominent, major, seeker-driven um, venues uh, this past Sunday as compared to what you would have heard at a, well, a confessional church that understands that Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised again on the third day for our justifications, that's the center of Scripture, not you. So we'll be taking a look at two songs today uh, in particular, one that was uh, played at New Spring. Now, you remember a few years ago, New Spring Church opened up their Easter service with Highway to Hell. 
Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't. Well, do that this year. Uh, instead, uh, they opened up with Michael Jackson's "Man in the Mirror," and uh, so yeah. If you're thinking, well, that's an improvement. The answer is no. It's not. It really is not an improvement at all. Um, in fact, it's pretty much uh, the same old stuff, suffering from the same problem. And the same problem is this: uh, you ain't the center of scripture. And so we'll, we'll, we're going to compare uh, that rendition of Man in the Mirror to just a few hymns uh, from uh, some confessional churches from around. Uh, well, actually, uh, I think we got all of the audio for this uh, from uh, Bethany Lutheran Church up there in Naperville, Illinois. Uh, the, the, but uh, the point is, is that it doesn't matter if it was Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville or a good uh, uh, church in your neck of the woods. Um, they understood that, well, the resurrection of Christ is the thing that basically runs the table every Sunday and doubly so on Easter. So we're going to take a look at, we're going to do some musical comparison today. And then in hour number two, we're going to begin um, our, our week long of good Easter sermons. So he, yeah, the idea is this, is we're, we're going to show you what the real thing looks like. We're going to show you from several different denominations even, okay? We'll kick off with a couple of good Lutheran sermons from confessional Lutheran guys. In fact, I got uh, Cy Van Manen from uh, Riverbend Lutheran up in, uh, in Canada, and I've got uh, Ron Hodel on deck today too. Both of these are fantastic fantastic short sermons but they they make the point i think tomorrow we got gervais charmley and uh, you know and then i have i have to make decisions for wednesday thursday and friday but the the point is this is that this week you get to hear what it sounds like when you're when a pastor preaches doesn't preach himself but preaches christ you're going to find out you you're going to you're going to hear from several different guys from several different denominations in groups, if you would, uh, you know, so you got Reformed and uh, and and Lutheran. I think that's we're going to kind of stick to that, you know, to that genre there. But uh, you're going to hear from several guys great Easter sermons that preaching God's word, the gospel, the message of Christ, and preaching it for you and for your sins the way it's supposed to be preached. And then next week, that's going to be the train wreck. Um, I'm already getting submissions and nominees for next week. Just so you know, next every year here at Fighting for the Faith, we hold a contest. And the contest is this. It's the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And um, if you would like to nominate a sermon for the ne- this year's contest, you need to email me a link. Okay, And the, the, the subject of the email needs to say, Worst Easter Sermon Nominee. You can it, put it in all caps. It helps to... To, to point it out because I, you know, I'm a little bit behind on my emails again, and you know, I, I get several hundred a day, and so it's a little tricky to kind of keep up. But uh, put, you know, and put a link there, and it would also help if you explain why you think that sermon should be considered for this year's edition, you know, edition of the worst Easter sermon of 2012. Okay, and so what we're going to do next week is we're going to spend all of our sermon review time next week. Uh, reviewing those uh, those sermons that are going to be for your consideration uh, to be voted on as the worst Easter sermon of 2012, and at the end of the of next week, you will actually get a chance to vote and decide who is uh, you know who who is going to receive the dubious award 
of uh, of you know of, of the person who preached the worst Easter sermon of 2012, and the winner, by the way, the winner of the contest, uh, we will be sending them a letter uh, from Pirate Christian Radio on our stationery informing them that they have won, as well as a copy of uh, Dr. Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. That's uh, that's what we do for the winners. We send them out. Now, whether or not they receive them, we, we haven't heard back from any winners yet that they had actually received our copies of the books but you know just, just so you know that that's that that part of what we do here is to inform them that they that they won the that year and we give them a copy of Michael Horton's book Christless Christianity in the hopes that they will never again uh have their sermons featured in our annual worst easter sermon of the year contest so uh, just so you know that's uh, what we're going to be working on so um with that I'm looking at my time here um hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah, let's let's do this. Hang on a second here. Um, we'll, we'll take a look at a news story real quick, and then we'll take our break, and we'll come back with the with the other things on our our docket today. And since our sermons are a little bit uh, shorter for our sermon review time, we might go a little bit long in the first hour. So, yeah, you know, with that, let's dive into this from the KCRA.com website. Um, the headline reads: Christian Easter at Muslims Mosque. Yeah, this was on, I think, the local Sacramento affiliate, uh, the KCRA, and you can find this at kcra.com. But uh, here's the uh, news story that uh, appeared for the news folks out there, for the folks living out in the Sacramento area. Listen in. Good morning, everyone. Easter at a mosque. Christians are beginning to arrive for service. KCRA 3's Leticia Ordaz joins us live from Salam Islamic Center with why they're at a mosque instead of a church. Good morning, Leticia. Well, good morning, Brian. There's a huge crowd already this morning for the 8.30 service. It turns out the Christian Center lost their lease one week before Easter, so the Muslim community was kind enough to rent out this mosque, so to speak. And Okay, now pause right there for a second. Okay, so this church in Sacramento, the Christian Center, lost their lease and as a result of it had nowhere to meet for Easter services and the Muslims in the community there in Sacramento decided to let them use their mosque in order to hold their Christian service. Already, we're starting to get into a gray area, okay? Um, yeah, we're, we've gone from black and white to something that, okay, let me explain why, okay? I know of several Missouri Synod congregations that are small congregations, Therefore, being small congregations, um, they don't have their own building. And so what do they do uh, in order to hold their church services? Well, answer is pretty simple. What they do is they use the church buildings of Seventh-day Adventists. And you're thinking, Seventh-day Adventists? Right. Now, um, now, there's a lot of debate still going on today as to whether or not the Seventh-day Adventists are a cult. Okay, Dr. Walter Martin decided that they're not a cult, but they're heterodox. Um, I would say we've got a big problem with the Seventh-day Adventists, especially since uh, it seems to be a form of the Galatian heresy, a very works-righteousness-based religion that ultimately doesn't really properly understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. As a result of it, um, I think one could make the case that uh, that you know, without a proper distinction of long gospel and a proper preaching of Christ and Him crucified for our sins, and our salvation hinging on whether or not we worship on Saturdays, well, that's all legalism. 
And in that kind of a scheme, well, then the, the writings of the Apostle Paul in the, uh, in the uh, epistle to the Galatians come into play. Uh, you who would be justified by the law, Paul writes in Galatians 5, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace, right? So, yeah, so I think that's a, a good way to take on the Seventh-day Adventists. But we could say this, is that um, the Missouri Synod churches are in, they're not in table fellowship with any of the congregations uh, that are Seventh-day Adventists, yet they hold their services there. Why? Plain and simple. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists aren't there on Sundays. Their buildings are, well, vacant. They're open. They're available. And they're churches. And so uh, there's a lot of Missouri Synod congregations who will lease out spaces, uh, lease out uh, the use of Seventh-day Adventist um, facilities and use it on Sunday. So if you're there, if you go to that if you go to that building on a Saturday, it's a Seventh-day Adventist service. If you go there on a Sunday, you might uh, attend a confessional Lutheran service, right? So uh, it, so you can make a case in this case that all right, so here's the deal. It's awfully nice of the Muslims to help out Christians in a pinch, right? Now, I think Osama bin Laden if he were if he heard this story would be uh, rolling over. Well, he was cast into the sea. Um, uh, he would burble. Uh, he would. He, he would. He would blow bubbles um, from his watery grave, in in, in 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 angst and consternation to hear that a mosque is being used for Christians to worship in. Right. Um, if you think about you know Islamic history in particular, I, I would uh, point to uh, when the Muslims sacked and took over Constantinople. Okay, uh, Constantinople has a very famous Christian um, cathedral church there, uh, the Hagia Sophia. And uh, if you've seen pictures of it now, it, it well, it's got the minarets around it, and it's been taken over. And uh, and it, for for centuries, it was a mosque. And you know, and so they, they weren't they were wouldn't allow the Christians to use the Hagia Sophia for Christian worship. They I don't even think they still do today. Um, in fact, only recently have they decided to move away some of the large uh, Islamic writing that covered up the uh, the artwork of the Hagia Sophia so that people can see it and take photographs of it, stuff that hadn't been seen for centuries. So already we're kind of on shaky ground, but I mean, if this was all it was, was the Muslims helping the Christians out and the Christians saying, we need a space for Sunday, I would go, okay... Sure, why not? But then there's more to the story, and the more the more to the story continues. Listen carefully to the language uh, between the Christian pastor of this church and the guy running the mosque. Listen in. The space, and people are so excited about two religions coming together now, and I'm here now with... Two religions coming together. People are so excited about two religions coming together. Huh. Yeah, I can't do that because Muslims worship a false god. The Reverend, to tell me a little bit more about this day in history. Well, this is this is literally a dream come true for me because when we were when I was struggling about where we were going to be for the biggest day of now, this is the Revel, Reverend Michael Moran. Um, listen to uh, this. The year on the Christian calendar, we had no place to go, 
And at night when I would toss and turn, I had a dream where I saw a newspaper headline that said Easter at the mosque. And I thought to myself, well, that probably won't happen. But the next morning, I called my friend, Dr. Metwali Ammer, who's the founder of the Sacramento Area League of Associated Muslims. And I told him of the dream, and he made it come true for us today. So we are celebrating Easter at the mosque, just like the headline said. Okay, now I want to point something out here. Um, Yeah, we're celebrating Easter at the mosque, just like the headline said. said. Um, This would be a prophetic dream or vision, I would say, in the same variety and stripe and... uh, Genus and species is the same kind of dreams and visions we get from Patricia King. And, okay, l- listen, I'm I'm not saying that he didn't really have a dream. Sure, he had a dream. I'm just saying that uh, I'm highly, extremely, like, over-the-top doubtful that that dream has its origin in God the Holy Spirit. In fact, if it did have its origin in, you know, God the Holy Spirit is the one who revealed to him that they would be having... Easter at the mosque, I'm pretty much convinced based on what God's word clearly says in the written word that God the Holy Spirit was warning him, not encouraging him. Uh, and Dr. Ammer, is this unheard of? Uh, yes, and I'm really, we are really excited uh, to make our mosque available uh, for the Spiritual Life Center, a Christian congregation. Spiritual Life Center. Uh, to pray at our mosque today, especially the uh, Easter service. And how did the Muslim community react when you told them that this was going to be happening here? Well, uh, definitely we are part of the community, part of the American dream, and we are really excited. And they are excited also uh, to make uh, the facilities uh, available in case of need, in time of need. And showing two religions coming together as exactly. one. And showing two religions coming together as one. Well, that ain't um, the Easter message at all, is it? Two religions coming together as one? No, that this is a flagrant breaking of the first commandment. The first commandment which, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. So um, how was this justified by the so-called Christian pastor? Well, he had a dream. And how was the media interpreted? Two religions coming together as one on Easter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't Christian at all, at least if the Bible is to have any say as to what it means to call yourself Christian. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church Day Select. 
Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your pastor isn't preaching Christ raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, there's a big problem. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and your financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here, uh, here's a short little uh, audio clip of uh, David Crank 
of Faith Church out there in uh, St. Louis. Um, a, a, a day after Easter sermonette, if you would, um, here, I'll let David Crank explain. You know, it's the Monday after Easter. I want to say hi to all my Facebook friends and tell you the glorious good news that Jesus has been resurrected. You know, in Mark 16... I mean, we're off to a great start there, right? I mean, just tell you the glorious good news that Jesus is resurrected. You're thinking, wow, what got into David Crank? (laughs) Don't worry, it'll go off the rails in just a few seconds here. Verse 2, it says, very early in the morning of the first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher, they came to the tomb of the rising of the sun, and they said to themselves, who shall roll away the stone? They come up, and the stone had already been rolled away. And the man- now, now, right, see, right now, we're, we're, this is a Christ-centered reading so far. But see, here's the deal. David Crank is one of these guys who actually suffers from the narcissistic problem that seems to have infected much of American evangelicalism. He actually doesn't think the Bible's about Jesus. No, no, no. He thinks it's about him. And ultimately, he teaches you to read it as if it's about you. Watch the transition here. It happens really, really quickly. We go from reading a text about Jesus to hijacking it wholesale and, well, making it about you. And the only way you can do that is by, well, the false belief that you're the center of the scriptures. You're not, though, but watch what happens here. Again, it happens really quickly. And don't worry if you miss it, I'll actually point it out. So let's continue. And sitting inside said, are you looking for Jesus? I said, yeah. I said, he's gone. He's been resurrected. You know, maybe in your life today, there's some things that have held you back. You've been suppressed. Did you catch? (laughs) Seriously. I mean, I mean, I don't even think he took a breath. I mean, so uh, where Jesus, he's been raised again. He's not here. Now, there's uh, are there times in your life where you feel like you're being held back and suppressed? Right. See, that's what Jesus death. When you when you make yourself the center of Scripture. Um, like the way, you know, the medieval guys tried to make the earth the center of the uh, universe, it doesn't work. Um, what happens is you you engage in absurdity, and, and you can't get anything to make any sense in the Bible because you can't put yourself into the center of it and have it make any sense. So all of a sudden, now, in fact, I want, I, want you, I want you to hear it from him again. again so I'm going to back this up a few seconds. Listen, watch the transition. He's, he's talking about Jesus, reading from Mark, and then all of a sudden he's, I mean, without even blinking, I, his eyes were wide open, and he did not take a breath. He immediately, as soon as he finishes reading that, turns the corner, and this is no longer about Jesus. It's about you. Yeah, I said, he's gone. He's been resurrected. You know, maybe in your life today, there's some things that have held you back. You've been suppressed. You didn't- yeah, see, do you think that the story of Jesus' death on the cross... Um. <laughs> was the story about him being having setbacks and being suppressed. See, Jesus was being suppressed by death. And see that see and so the reason why Jesus rose again from the grave is to teach us how to overcome our setbacks and our feelings of being suppressed. It's it's absurd. This is just flat out asinine. It, this is ridiculous. And the only way you can pull this off is if you blindly and I mean blindly, are under the false delusion that the Bible's about you and not Jesus. Let me back this up again. It's just unbelievable. I, I, every time he does, I watch this, I just sit there with my jaw on my desk going, I, I can't believe that anybody who calls himself a 
Christian pastor would do this. said, are you looking for Jesus? I said, yeah. I said, he's gone. He's been resurrected. You know, maybe in your life today, there's some things that have held you back. You've been suppressed. You didn't feel like God really was impressed with you. Yeah, see, that's, see, Jesus, you know, while Jesus was dead, God really wasn't impressed with him. You had your eyes too much on yourself. You know, I've done that many, many times. You're doing it right now. What do you mean you've done that many times? You're doing it right now by hijacking this passage about Jesus and him raised from the dead and making about me feeling, my feelings of being suppressed and, you know, and setbacks in my life. I had my eyes on me instead of on Jesus. You know, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and get it on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, when were you, when were you planning on doing that? Because you just read the passage and then made the passage about me. You know, he's resurrected today. Yeah, he is. The tomb that you once were held captive in, God has now rolled the stone away. The tomb, oh, man. <laughs> I mean, did he not just say that we need to put our eyes on Jesus? And then he turns around and he allegorizes Jesus' own tomb. Now it's an allegory about, you see, you know, see, you were, you know, you were in your tomb and God rolled away the stone in your tomb. And now you've been seated with him in heavenly places. Really? I, oh, man. (laughs) The way he's talking, I mean, I would almost come to the conclusion that I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father and reigning over heaven and earth. You know, behind me is the gateway to the West. Wherever you're watching in the world, this is the arch towering 630 feet in the air. And every single day, without fail, the sun pops through the clouds, and it's a sign that his mercies are new every morning. So today, if you're watching on Facebook or Twitter or or wherever you're watching this, know this, that God has resurrected your life. See, again, what was the purpose of reading the story about Jesus? Because this is now hijacked and been turned into something about, well, me. Can't wait to hear his sermon from Sunday, by the way. Been seated with him in heavenly places. The day after Resurrection Sunday should be the day that you and I fully embrace God's grace and know when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the same time, he was saying, my God, my God, now you can accept them. Now see yourself as God sees you. He sees you victorious today. He sees you an overcomer today. He, <laughs> you know what's really funny? Okay, the, the, there is a name for a particular way of reading Scripture. It's called Christus Victor. Now, the, the liberals have completely botched this whole thing, but uh, it's a valid facet of the atonement of Christ. In fact, uh, the, the uh, you, you, Jeremy Rohde, um, a while back, he preached a sermon, uh, uh, I think an Easter sermon, uh, you know, and it was called Christus Victor. It was a fantastic sermon. But uh, the point being this is that Christ, is, he's conquered sin, death, the devil, and so we could talk about Jesus being victorious. See, and David Crank here, well, because he falsely, and I mean falsely in the worst sense of the word, blindly, in death, okay, and he doesn't, he doesn't understand Christianity. He thinks it's you read all of these stories and then you make it about you. And then he turns around and says, and you got to keep your eyes on Christ. But then he just, as soon as no sooner does he say those words, he takes a biblical text and makes it about you. And rather than focus on Christ's victory over sin and the grave, he says, he says, you're victorious. This is just narcissism run amok. This is absolutely, well, what the Apostle Paul prophesied, that in the last days people would be lovers of themselves. Again, during Easter, this thing sticks out like a sore thumb. Okay, moving along here. I don't have any um, transition music for this next segment. But what we're going to do 
is we're going to do a little bit of musical sampling, if you would. We're going to sample a couple of songs, one from New Spring Church. Um, this is from uh, this was what was played uh, at New Spring this Easter. Okay, that would be yesterday. And uh, this is an acoustical rendition of Man in the Mirror. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to we're just do a little bit of um, musical comparison, and we're not going to compare styles because that is absolutely the most shallow way of of judging this. You know, who cares what the style is? The question is, what does what do these lyrics say? Okay, and then we're also going to take a look at um, well, let's see here. Uh, North Point Church in Springfield, uh, Missouri. Uh, yeah, we're going to be looking at their song that they did yesterday for their Easter service. I won't tell you what it is yet, but uh, you know, and we're we're going to do some lyrical comparison. Okay, we're going to compare this to hymns that Christians have sung for centuries and, in some cases, millennia. Uh, uh during uh, you know, for Easter, you know, the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And see if um, which songs represent a theology where Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you know, the incarnate Son of God, the virgin-born Son of God, which has Him as the center, and which has man as the center. Again, we're just gonna do we're gonna do lyrical comparison. So first, let me give you a, a sampling of the Man in the Mirror. Um, that was sung at New Spring. Uh, here we go. It's an acoustical rendition. That's an acoustic guitar. Again, song by the late Michael Jackson. Gonna make a change for once in my life. is a great analogy for um, a narcissistic reading of the Bible. All right, now let me read some of these lyrics here for you, you know, because uh, you know, just the audio quality is not of such that we can readily understand the lyrics. And plus, I've, you know, I've, I did see that television show that was on the air a couple years ago. 
uh, don't forget the lyrics and realize that many people, even you know, popular pop songs, you know, they'll sing along in their car. I mean, I, I do that myself. I mean, I like to Muppet dance while I'm uh, driving the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile to different venues, and you know, I, you know, I'll turn up the radio and and sing along. But if you were to listen to the lyrics that I sing, you would realize. Half of the lyrics that are being sung in the songs that I'm so exuberantly singing to, I don't know any of them. So, you know, it would be rather embarrassing. In fact, if somebody were to put one of those like weird, cam- you know, those like cameras that had suction cup cameras onto the, you know, uh, the uh, windshield of my truck uh, while I'm driving and were to capture a video of me singing, I guarantee you they could probably use that video for blackmail reasons. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, you know. It- it's that embarrassing. Trust me, it's really that. It, you, the mental pictures should be frightening you if they're not already. But anyway, okay, so Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, okay, from the Bad Album. Here, here's the lyrics. I'm going to make a change for once in my life. It's going to feel real good. Going to make a difference. Going to make it right. As I turn up the collar on my favorite winter coat, this wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the streets with not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see their needs? A summer disregard, a broken bottle top, and a one-man soul. They follow each other on the wind, you know, because they got nowhere to go. That's what I want you to know. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, if you want to make the world a better place, you got to look at yourself and then make the change. Um, do you need a crucified and risen Savior for that? Nope, you don't. Just look at yourself and make the change, right? Now, the odd thing is, is that I would make the contention that this song, which was sung yesterday at New Spring for their Easter services, well, I think it reflects their theology perfectly. And that's the reason why they sang it. That would be the contention that I'm making here. Now, let me give you you another example here from another prominent seeker-driven church, North Point Church in Springfield, uh, Missouri, okay, Yesterday, for their Easter service, they uh, did their uh, did a rendition of the Kings of Leon's uh, famous song, Immortals. Uh, yeah, uh, here uh, here they are performing their version of this for their Easter service.
Yeah, I'm not familiar with that song, so I had to look up the lyrics on one of those lyric websites. Boy, they have a lot of junk advertising on those sites. But anyway, uh, from the, 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 this is from the um, Come Around Sundown album from the Kings of Leon. The name of the song is Immortals. Let me read this. Um, the open road, the path of greatness, it's at your fingers. Uh, go be the one that keeps on fighting. Go be the stranger. Just put your foot in front of the other. Crow like the rooster. <laughs> okay. We are allowed to get us something free as a danger. I say spinning on the streets of stars and right away find out what you are face to face. Those are some of the lyrics there. Now, here's the deal. That's uh, how the folks there at... Um, North Point, um, Tommy Sparger, uh, uh, the head uh, self-help guru there, um, that's how they, that's one of the songs that they put in the mix. So you got New Spring Church singing Man in the Mirror, you got uh, um, North Point um, singing Immortals. And by the way, um, the, the <laughs> these are just two examples. There's a ton of seeker-driven churches and their praise bands who were really excited to put the videos up of what they sang uh, you know, during their Easter services. And I, again, I'm going to make the contention here that I think the reason why North Point uh, sang uh, the Immortals or Immortals by the Kings of Leon is uh, because this song really, in fact, represents their theology. Why? Because in their theology, well, you're the center of the Bible, not Christ and him crucified for our sins. They talk about making Jesus the center, but like um, David Crank from Faith Church in St. Louis, no sooner do you read a passage about Jesus that you, well, make it about yourself. And so I, so those are two songs that were played at prominent seeker-driven churches yesterday for Easter Sunday. Which, now, I'd like to do a little comparative work. And uh, in order to do this, I have enlisted the help of my hymnal and also the uh, the help of Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois, and uh, their audio podcast of their Easter sermon, of their Easter services. And uh, what I would like to do right now is just do a smidge of comparative work and see if just based on the lyrics, again, I, I, I care less about the style here. This is not about style. Based on the lyrics that you heard from New Spring, from North Point, and now from a confessional Lutheran church. I mean, the, my, the church I was at yesterday, we sang, I think, all but one of these uh, hymns ourselves. So um, with that, let, let's kind of kick this off. And we're going to begin with the hymn, Jesus Christ is Risen Today. Here's a little bit uh, of a sampling of that particular hymn from the folks, the good folks over there at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois. Here, listen in. Christ is risen.
Okay, now that's just that's just uh, stanza one. Let me read uh, let me read portions of this hymn for you. Jesus Christ is risen today, Alleluia. Our triumphant holy day, Alleluia. Who did once upon the cross, Alleluia, suffer to redeem our loss, Alleluia. Now I'll leave out the Alleluia so I can read more of these lyrics here. Hymns of praise, then let us sing unto Christ, our heavenly King, who endured the cross and grave, sinners to redeem and save. But the pains which he endured our salvation have procured. Now above the sky he's king, where the angels ever sing. Sing we to our God above, praise eternal as his love. Praise him, all ye heavenly host, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Which song, regardless of um, style, because again, style is such a shallow way of looking at this, which song had Jesus Christ as the center rather than you or me? Was it Jesus Christ is uh, risen today or was it, well, here, a little bit more of this. yourself and make the change okay here here's another um hymn again from the good folks there at uh, bethany lutheran church in naperville illinois um here's the hymn it's entitled now all the vault of heaven resounds see if you can figure out who this is about Here, here here listen in Stanza one again. The audio isn't that great, so let me read to you the lyrics from the song again. We're just looking at the content here. Now all the vault of heaven resounds in praise of love that still abounds. Christ has triumphed; 
he is living. Sing choirs of angels loud and clear. Repeat their song of glory here. Christ has triumphed. Christ has triumphed. Alleluia. 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 Eternal is the gift he brings. Therefore our heart with rapture sings. Christ has triumphed. He is living. Now still he comes to give us life, and by his presence stills all strife. Christ has triumphed. He is living. Alleluia. 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 O fill us, Lord, with dauntless love. Set heart and will on things above. That we conquer through your triumph. Grant grace sufficient for life's day. That by our lives we truly say Christ has triumphed. He is risen. Alleluia. Alleluia. And by the way, you stand for this last stanza because it invokes the name of the, of the Trinity itself. Adoring praises now we sing, and with heavenly blessed sing, Christ has triumphed, alleluia. Be to the Father and our Lord, to the Spirit blessed, most holy God, all the glory, never ending, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Okay, now, which of those two songs focuses on Christ and which of them focuses on me? Again, the, both of them were performed, not performed, but, yeah. well, in the case of the New Spring folks, you know, their song, Man in the Mirror, well, that was a performance. Now, let me ask you a more poignant question. Um, you know, since we know from Scripture that Satan, you know, you know, this would be the arch enemy of the one true God, Satan, the one who, in the garden, tempted Adam and Eve and wrecked humanity and gave us this miserable misery that we have now as a result of our sinful rebellion, right? That Satan hates, loathes, despises, and wants to destroy God and everything that he's made, right? That That's Satan. Satan is a liar. He's a thief, a murderer, and a destroyer, and he's the arch enemy of our great God and King, right? Which of these two songs would Satan have no problem with you singing on a Sunday? The one we just, uh, you know, let's see here. Um, Jesus Christ is risen today. Would Satan be okay with that song? Um, or would Satan be okay with now all the vault of heaven resounds? Would he be okay with that song? Or would he be okay, well, with um, this song? Okay, so that's just a you know another 
Um, if you want to know the lyrics on that one, um, the windows are the perfect picture. They're always changing. Go on, get lost, jump in the waters when they are raging, spinning on the streets of stars and right away, find out what you are face to face. Once you've had enough, carry on. Don't forget to love, uh, for your, before you're gone. Uh, you know, so which of those two songs do you think Satan would be absolutely opposed to? Um, again, uh, you know, Jesus Christ is risen today or uh, the immortals. Do you, you understand what I'm trying to get at here? I mean, Satan is perfectly comfortable with one of these songs. And I think the lyrics dictate that for us. But uh, while we're at it, let's let's just play the opening to one more for lack of a better way of putting it, traditional Easter hymn, just so that we can uh, you know, we can just do a little comparative work. Again, it's not about style, because uh, again, style is such a shallow way of doing the comparative work. I think if we're going to do real comparative work, we got to look at the substance. So here's another Easter hymn. See if you recognize it. Again, let me read the lyrics here. You may be familiar with the tune. I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives. He lives who once was dead. He lives my ever-living head. He lives triumphant from the grave. He lives eternally to save. He lives all glorious in the sky. He lives exalted there on high. So which which of those songs do you think Satan would have a problem with? Uh would it, you know, out of the songs that we've reviewed so far, we've got um The uh, Man in the Mirror by well, the late Michael Jackson. We've got The Immortals by the um Kings of Leon. And then we've got Now All the Vault of Heaven Resounds, Jesus Christ is Risen Today and I Know That My Redeemer Lives. Of the five songs that we've discussed here, again, all of them, every one of them has one thing in common, and that is that they were all sung at Easter services yesterday, right? Of the five songs that we've reviewed, which of them would Satan have a problem with and would be absolutely furious at you singing, and which would Satan be delighted at having you sing, right? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Which of the of those five songs exalt Christ and have him as the center? And which of those five songs 
exalt you and put you at the center. You see the difference? It's not really about traditional versus contemporary style now, is it? No, this is ultimately about two different competing theologies, two completely different religions. One of them is true Christianity. The other is a Christianity that masquerades as Christianity but isn't. And the reason why is because it falsely assumes that you are the center of Scripture, not Christ. And it shows up in what they preach and in what they sing. And it stands out like a sore thumb or a three-inch long pimple on the end of your nose on Easter Sunday. Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm always thrilled when Easter comes around, because it makes my job that much easier when it comes to pointing these things out. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we've got two fantastic, I mean ridiculously great, Christ-centered, truly Christ-centered sermons to play for you to start off this uh, Easter week of Fighting for the Faith. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two. We're well into it here at Fighting for the Faith. We've got two fantastic Easter sermons for you today. So that you can hear what a Christ-centered sermon sounds like on Easter.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's two sermons come to us via Riverbend Lutheran Church and Faith Lutheran Church, respectively. Riverbend Lutheran Church in, um, well, they're in Canada here. I forget the exact town. Pastor Cy Van Manen, that's right, Edmonton, Alberta. I'm just looking at their website. Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Cy Van Manen presiding. And then uh, Faith Lutheran Church is in Capistrano Beach, and that will be uh, preached by the Reverend Ron Hodel. Our first sermon is entitled Preaching Easter. This one's sneaky. That's all I'm going to say. It's sneaky. Because right off the bat, you're thinking, uh oh, he's like lowering expectations. <laughs> but don't worry. Oh, man, it, he, <laughs> it's a grand slam home run at the end. Uh, it's, yeah, you're going to love it. The uh, second sermon is entitled True Hope, and it's based on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. But let me, uh, let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Cy Van Manen of Riverbend Lutheran Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and his sermon that he preached yesterday entitled Preaching Easter. It's short, it's sneaky up front, and then he hits a Grand Slam home run at the end. That's all I got to say. Here's Cy Van Manen. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today comes from the Holy Gospel, St. Mark, the 16th chapter. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This is the text. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, I dislike preaching Easter. Now before you pull me down from the pulpit with pitchforks and torches, hear my words. I love Easter. I love Easter, but preaching it is not easy. How hard can it be, you're probably thinking. Well, ask yourself this question. Why are you here? You are here to hear that your sins are forgiven, that salvation is yours in Christ, that there is nothing you need to do to accomplish your salvation, that in Christ's death and his declaration, it is finished. It was finished. And all that was necessary to achieve your salvation was done for your sake by Jesus Christ. Today is Easter. The reason we exist is because of this day. If there was no resurrection, None of the rest of it would matter. Paul tells us, And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised the Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised either. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But your faith is not futile. This is the day, the resurrection day of our Lord. The day that he proclaims sin defeated, death vanquished, and the devil crushed. The risen Christ showed himself to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to more than five hundred. Christ is alive. Salvation is yours. So why is that so hard to preach? Well, I'll ask you again. Why are you here to hear this very thing? But why were you here last Sunday to hear that very thing? 
What about the 27 or so Sundays of Pentecost? You came to hear about the forgiveness of your sins in Christ and the promise of life everlasting in the empty tomb. Well, what about Lent, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany? Though they are all different seasons of the church year, you came here every one of those Sundays to hear about Christ's death and resurrection for your sake. When I worked as chaplain at Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch, I would see many of the kids before chapel, and they would always ask me, well, what are you preaching about today? I'd say, Jesus. They would respond with an exasperated look on their face, you always preach about Jesus. So you see my dilemma. This is the highest point of the church here, and I want to wow you with the good news. The good news remains the same. Wait. The fact that it remains the same is the good news. That God's love for you will never change. The good news is that Jesus did come for you. Come and gave his heavenly throne up. Took on human flesh, was born of a woman, born under the law. Took our sin into his flesh and died. So that we might be forgiven of all of our sin. Scripture tells us of that Easter morn. And entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The reason you are here is because with eyes of faith, you see what Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome saw. Jesus was not in the tomb. He is risen from the dead and now he is here. He is here in his word. He is here in with and under the bread and wine so that you may eat and drink his very body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins and the strengthening of your faith unto life everlasting. You are here because where else is there to go? Christ has the words of eternal life. Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Christ has risen from the dead and ascended into the heavens, and he has gone there to prepare a place for you. You are here because here there is hope. Hope in Christ that carries you day to day, month to month, year to year, through life to death, and back to life again. We are here because the first Easter makes everyday Easter for us as Christians. You can live in the comfort that Jesus loved you so much that he gladly and willingly gave his life for you and rose again. And now eternal life is yours. There is a book that's out right now by Joel Osteen called Every Day of Friday. It poses the question, do you want every day to have that 5 o'clock on Friday feeling? The write-up on the book states Joel Osteen, pastor of the largest megachurch in the U.S., tackles how to be happier seven days a week in his new book, Every Day of Friday. Osteen's keep things simple approach is to preach about hope and happiness and prosperity. Dear friends, the empty tomb does not promise prosperity in this life, nor even happiness, because sin breaks us and beats us down and makes us die. But you can come to God's house this Easter day with broken hearts and broken homes. You can come with soiled with sin and with sullied souls. You can come if you are beginning to unravel or at the end of your rope. God makes every day a Sunday. 
And you can come to this house because Jesus offers you what he himself shows you this day, an empty tomb. The grave could not hold him, and so shall it hold you neither. In 1994, as Vice President George Bush represented the U.S. at a funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it closed. Then just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope. A gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There in the citadel of secular atheistic power, the wife of a man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that that same Jesus might have mercy on her husband's soul. Dear friends, Christ has had mercy on your souls. I tell you the truth, though life may come at you, sin may wear you down and the devil may assail you in this life, God has prepared places in heaven for you where no more tears or trial, disease or death, sin or sadness will ever touch you again. You are here because Christ has risen. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh man, was that good. Ah, he hasn't made every day a Friday. He's made every day a Sunday. Oh, man. Amen and amen. All right. Sermon number two from our good Easter sermons collection that we will be sharing with you this week comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Pastor Ron Hodel preaching a sermon entitled True Hope, taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Here's Pastor Hodel. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Please be seated. What trauma there was. What hopelessness. So many questions. At first they wondered. The women did. They wondered who would roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb. Then they wondered where the body of Jesus was. They wondered when they saw angels where there should have been a corpse. And all of this wondering was combined with many tears. Somewhere in all of this, St. John tells us that Mary stood outside weeping. I can easily picture that scene because I've seen that scene before. And Probably so have you, husbands, weeping at the grave of their wives. Wives crying at the tomb of their husbands. Parents wailing uncontrollably at the grave of a child who just should not have gone before them. Children sobbing for their parents. Great weeping at gravesides in cemeteries everywhere. But then tombs are found all over the place, not just in cemeteries. We find tombs in the rubble of earthquakes, the crumpled steel of a terrible car wreck, along an entire 
coastline wiped out by tsunami or even tombs that disguise themselves with the tubes and wires and machines in a hospital. There is no shortage of tombs or tears in our world today. Never been to a cemetery, you say? Haven't met death? I hate to be the bad bearer of bad news, but you will. Death, you see, is an equal opportunity employer, and its employment rate is 100%, which means it's coming for everyone, even for me, even for you. And the Bible sums up the answer to why. Simply, all have sinned, and so all die. There's no shortage of tombs or tears in our world today, but you know what there's a shortage of? Today there's a shortage of hope. True, politicians promise it. It's built into the operating systems of optimists everywhere. It's what drags us out of bed each day, hoping that today will be better than yesterday. A job will come. Things will start looking up. I'll find whatever it is I'm looking for. But even if all that comes true, even if things finally do start going our way, we know deep down inside that disaster is only a a heartbeat away. The whole thing hangs by a thin, unraveling thread. What there is, is a shortage of hope. Real hope. True hope, solid hope, hope that just plain doesn't go away. Hope that comes not as a slogan, but hope that comes from the certainty that this thing called death is not, in the end, the victor. Hope that there is an answer a real answer to the tombs we face. Tombs that are so frightful to look at that our cities are even afraid to include them within the city limits, lest they remind residents of the most romantic place on the coast that it's still a hopeless place to live. Notice, and no, I'm, pa- I'm pausing here. Notice he's not talking about allegorical tombs like David Crank talked about. He's talking about the real ones, the one that has your name on it, the one that has my name on it. It's just a matter of time before we occupy that space, and you and I both know it. That's the tomb he's talking about. Today, we have an answer. And that's not just a campaign slogan. In the face of all that screams hopelessness at you, today comes hope, a real hope. For the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that you have a Savior who has met your enemy and beat it. Today, we are reminded that we have a Savior who entered death itself to deal death a mortal blow from which it will never recover. A Savior who entered the stinking gullet of death and like Jonah's great fish, forced it to vomit him back to life, never to die again. 
a dynamite that blows death up from the inside out. Your most fearsome enemy has been defeated. Whatever tombs you see, whatever deaths you have to face from the little ones that you have to die each day of your life to the big one at the end, the steely grip of death cannot hold those who are in Christ Jesus. For when death comes for us, the word of God made flesh will speak to death and say, let go of him. Release my child. You have no right to her. I have atoned for his sins. You have no claim on her. Release him. And like the creative word spoken in the beginning, it will be so. And we too will bodily rise from death to life in Jesus. That's why all over the world today, the church defiantly cries out, Christ is risen. In sanctuaries all over the world, Christians shout, Alleluia, because this is our hope. But it's a hope that won't be known unless, unless it is called out. It has to be proclaimed. Because like Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome and all the other disciples as well, all people see around them are tombs. People look around and see very little that is victorious. And if it looks victorious, it doesn't stay victorious for long. We look around and what we see is, in the end, sadness and pain, wars and fighting, disease and struggle, death and defeat, failure and futility. And it all looks and feels so fearsome and so terribly final. But for those dear women at that first Easter morning, there was a word that pierced the darkness. A word that broke winter's grip. A word that caused the dead heart to start beating again. A word that flew through their ears and entered their hearts and caused them such joy as they had never had before. It was the proclamation of the angel. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And their tears of sorrow were changed to tears of joy. The same is true for us today. There is a voice and a word that pierces the darkness that enshrouds us. A voice and a word that pulls victory from the jaws of defeat. A voice and a word that releases us from the prison of sin that holds us captive. A voice and a word that drives away the fears and grief that do their best to destroy all hope within us. It's the voice of our good shepherd who calls us to life again in the waters of holy baptism. The voice of our good shepherd who through the mouth of your pastor tells you your deadly sins have been forgiven. It's the voice of your good shepherd who says, you look weak and hungry, so take and eat 
drink of me. And by doing so, he releases us from the famine of hope and fills us with his righteousness and his life. And it's a voice that makes every day for us an Easter day. And that means that every day, even the gloomiest, can be days of true joy and real hope. Not necessarily happy days, but days of hope, nevertheless. Days of confidence and peace because it's the voice and the word who made a promise to you with his own raised body, the very body that was crucified, that your life, your, your wife will live again. Your husband will be raised. Your child will wake up from her rest in the tomb. Your mom and dad will live again. And so will you. I'll grant you can hear all that and say, you know, it's all a bunch of Pollyanna. It's all a bunch of fantasy talk. Mythology. This resurrection of Jesus from the grave. What's to say this is true and all the other world religions aren't? Isn't faith and belief just a a cop-out? The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence? Well, consider this brief evidence, and there's more where this comes from, plenty more. There's more evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead than that there is that the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae happened. There's more evidence that Jesus was raised from the tomb than there is that Alexander the Great, Aristotle, and Plato existed. If one rejects the overwhelming historical evidence that points to the resurrection of Jesus, then one has to reject all of ancient history as well and simply be content with saying, we can know absolutely nothing about our past. In the face of that, my friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. True enough, we still live in a world of thorns and thistles, of disease and death, everywhere you look. But, but where Jesus is, where Jesus speaks, it's paradise again. It's back to the Garden of Eden again. And in paradise, we can live forever in hope and joy and confidence and peace. That's the fruit of Jesus' resurrection and his victory over sin, death, and the devil in our lives. Not only does his victory mean eternal life for us in heaven somewhere off in the future, it changes things forever even now. It changes how we live. It changes how we grieve. It changes how we face the good and the bad things that happen to us in this life. It answers the problem of evil in the world. It even changes how we die. Now, I'm not saying we can be irresponsible. I'm not saying that we don't need to plan and think and prepare and make good choices all because of the resurrection. But no longer do we need to worry about what life will bring us. No longer do we need to worry about the future. 
or what will happen, or dying, or earthquakes, or tsunamis, or the power plant melting down, or something like that, or the, the Mayan was a December 21st catastrophe, or calamity, or accident. Whatever tomorrow brings, be it joy or sadness, be it life or death, ultimately, now and forever, we are living safe in Christ. Death did its worst to him, and it lost. And because in holy baptism, God has tucked you into his pockets, you can now live in the confidence that even if death does its worst to you, it is going to come up losing yet once again. But that's not all. This incredible freedom changes how we live in another, day, another way as well. If I don't need to worry about myself and my life anymore, if I can be confident that I have a Savior who has paid for my sin and died the death that I deserve to die, and a Father in Heaven who does care for me always, then I am free to worry about others. Now I can lay down my life, so to speak, for others because I know my life is already safe, hid with Christ in God. That's the life we need. And that's the life we now have because of this day, this Easter day. As St. John Chrysostom uh, wrote in his Easter sermon, and if you use the treasury of daily prayer, maybe you've already prayed this or you will pray it again today. Because Christ is risen, death has been overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons have fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being raised from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Hallelujah. One day his voice is going to sound again and call your name. And even if you've been dead a thousand years, your ears will know his voice. And your eyes will see him. And you will follow him from the grave, from this life to the next from this valley of the shadow of death to the paradise of Eden, where the entrance is no longer guarded by an angel with flaming swords, but by angels singing the praises of him who died and lives again. And you too will join their song. So sing today, sing loudly. Sing today for the victory has been won. Sing today of your confidence and hope. Know that your Redeemer lives for Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. You know, I, I just got to do this. This is uh, Jeremy Rohde's sermon from last year called Christus Victor. Worth playing just to tack on to the end here. Consider this just a bonus track. Here we go. In the name of Jesus. Amen. He is risen. He is risen, he is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. Who is risen? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
He who opened the Red Sea with the blast of his nostrils and brought its crushing fury down on Israel's enemies. He who stood with Joshua against the invincible fortress of Jericho and brought its great walls to dust with trumpet blast and shout. He who heard the cry of his helpless people when the dread king of Assyria and his countless legions surrounded them. Yes, that very night, he walked into their camp alone. And by morning, 185,000 enemies of Israel lay dead. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, The Lord, mighty in battle. But nothing, nothing in all the annals of heaven or earth compares to the victory that he won when he stepped forth from the tomb that first Easter morn. There is no enemy more devouring than death. No enemy more ferocious than hell. Yet here he stands. Here stands the body that death did claim. Here stands the body that death did slay. With the rising of the fiery Easter sun, the Lord rises victorious in his body. Reorient yourself, O man, you whom he has created. The universe is his, and all its fullness, it always has been. Of his victory, all creation sings, for he has ordained it. The seed that dies in the earth and springs to a flower, does so because of him who was planted in the tomb, him who blooms to life again. The sun dies in the evening and rises in the morning because of the sun who dies in the darkness of Golgotha and rises in the glory of Easter dawn. Even the seasons themselves tell of his victory. The death of winter gives way to the living spring because he who died now lives again. Reorient yourself, O man. He is not like these created things. They are like Him. For He made them. As of old, He designed this creation to prophesy what He would do. And now that He has done it, all this creation sings His praise and preaches the song of His salvation into mankind's blind eyes and deaf ears.
death, and hell entered God's creation when Adam sinned. Wherever there is sin, death and hell can stake their claim. The sinner is their rightful prey. And so, because of your own sin, death opens its mouth to swallow you in the grave. And hell licks its lips to consume whatever is left. Like blood that draws the shark, your sins have drawn death and the devil right to you. And the one true God, the only one who could help you, is the very one you have sinned against. Yes, by your sins you have made yourself his enemy. What should he do for you? You and all your kind who have taken the life and creation that He gave you and made such a mess of it, what He should do, He does not do. And that is what the Scriptures call grace. Instead of standing against you, the Lord stands with you. He loves those who have hated Him. He is faithful to those who have been unfaithful to him. He calls the man who does not work righteous and the ungodly man he justifies. Just as he once stood with helpless Israel, he now stands with you against the fiercest and most terrible enemies our world has ever known like blood that draws the shark. Your sins have drawn death and the devil to you. And so what does your Lord and Savior do? He takes the lies out of your mouth and puts them in His He takes the godlessness and hatred out of your heart and enshrines it in His. He takes all of the adultery and sexual immorality and filth out of your flesh and draws them into His flesh. He takes all your sin away from you and makes it His. Now you are clean, and He is sin. Now you are clean. Death and hell, they may growl and snap their jaws at you, but you are free from sin. They can make no claim on you. Now you are clean, and He is sin. Now death and hell and all their terrible might are drawn to Him and Him alone. And if you know something about the Lord, how He once stood with Israel against all Pharaoh's chariots and power, how He once stood with Joshua against impenetrable Jericho, 
how he once went out to save Israel from a few hundred thousand Assyrians all by himself. Yes, if you know a little something about your Lord, then when you see death striding straight at him and hell's army closing in around him, then you know he wouldn't have it any other way. And on Good Friday, that's all you see. Like some huge and horrible giant, death opens its mouth over him and swallows him, cross and all. Like the shadow of some terrible monster, the blackness of hell's army covers him. And on Good Friday, that's all you see. But you do know who this is. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, who is a man of war. It was three days later when the two Marys met the angel at the tomb, his appearance like lightning. And as they ran from that empty tomb with fear and great joy, behold, Jesus met them there. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Blessed are those feet that the women held. To this very day, they still bear the nail marks, the scars that tell you of his great love for you. Blessed are those feet of his, for under one foot lies death, and under his other foot lies hell. And where do his eyes look? Then you know who he did it for. He did it for you. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Death and hell came after him. And look at them now. He did this for you. He is death's death. He is hell's hell. And this means something almost too great for words, dear Christian. Though you die, yet shall you live. That's what this means. As he is risen in his body, so shall you and all who believe be raised from the dead. So come. Come all you faithless disciples who have deserted him and hear what he calls you. He calls you his brothers. And he will make you his brothers in arms. Come. All you unrighteous, be baptized into him for your forgiveness and be clothed in the full armor of God. All newborn soldiers of the crucified bear on their brow the seal of him who died. Come, all you sinners, and put a song on the angel's lips. 
Yes, the fiery-eyed army of heaven rejoices and gives thanks to God for one sinner who repents. Come, you Christmas and Easter Christians, and stand shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield with the army of Christ. Come, all you wounded and weary soldiers, receive the oil of absolution for your wounds and be strengthened by the wine that is His blood. Come, you veterans of many wars, and see the golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. Come, come one and all this Easter morn, for Christ is risen, He stands victorious over death and hell. And He has given you the victory. Alleluia. Amen. Amen and amen. I, to- I told you these were good. I told you these were good. Why? Because they don't preach themselves. They preach Christ and what He's done for us. Yeah, I, I, I mean... Seriously, I can't imagine Faith Lutheran Church or Pastor Van Manen performing The Man in the Mirror or The Immortals or anything, or even Highway to Hell or any other such nonsense on any given Sunday, yet alone Easter Sunday. Christianity is all about Christ. When you put yourself in the center of it, you can't make sense of it and you can't make it work. It's a hollow religion that can't save you, that keeps you focused on the man in the mirror rather than on the one who bled and died for you on the cross. Hmm. All right, well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>